Lane. Hey, Andy. How's it going? Good. Sorry about that earlier. <laughs> no, you're you're fine. I figured you were probably busy doing something, so yeah, not was, a problem at all. I was, uh, Nick, Nick Fitzgerald's dad called back finally, so I, uh, <laughs> I talked to him. Gotcha. No, that's fine. Um, well, fine. thanks for – Georgia boy. Gain, oh, yeah. Gainesville, Georgia, native yourself, but know about Georgia people who went to play quarterback in other places. <laughs> I would. I would. <laughs> um, well, I didn't want to take up a whole lot of your time, um, but I, I do appreciate you uh, talking to me. I, it, like I said, it's for um, one of my sports journalism classes at UGA. Um, it's like part of an internship. We just have to kind of talk to somebody in the business that – uh, we kind of like reading, kind of want to do something like they do um, once we get in the real world. So, well, I, it's it's interesting because I'm not even sure what it is I do anymore. <laughs> like, so I'm I, as we talk, I'm driving to Nashville mm-hmm. to spend the next two days eating, so I can write about eating in Nashville, and then oh, I'm going to wow. drive to SEC Media Days in Birmingham. So, like, mm-hmm. officially, part of my job is eating now. <laughs> I know. I saw like that new. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. The the new SI Eats, and I was going to ask you about that. Um, yeah. I guess we can – I mean, we could start there. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, you want to hear the, the – okay, so you, you're probably thinking, this is awesome, he gets to eat for a living. <laughs> the reason I wanted to do this mm-hmm. is I'm trying to save my job. Oh, wow. Look, look, look at – Look at what has happened to the people who cover college football nationally over the last three months. Half of yep. them have, have lost their jobs. So I need to make myself useful to my company mm-hmm. in any way I can. And this is something people really like. This is something people really like to read about. This is something people like to watch video about. It's something I can do while still doing my job covering college football without another huge time investment, without spending a lot more money on travel. And it's a, it's a way to make something the company can put to use that, you know, they can put out and readers will like readers will hopefully flock to it. And advertisers will want to advertise to that, those, those readers. And, you know, that's, you got to think about stuff that way now. You can't just, I mean, it, yes, you want to write good stories. That's always the most important part. Mm-hmm. But you have to think about what what do readers want, how can I engage them, how can I be of value to my company. That's, it's just, it's such a, such a competitive environment now, and, and there's so few people willing to pay for reporting anymore that you have to differentiate yourself somehow. So... Yeah. That's that's really what the where where the germ of SIE came on my end, mm-hmm. and then from my boss's point of view, they looked at it as, well, college football is a bit of a lifestyle sport anyway. You know, people are always talking about tailgating or where they eat on their road trips, and so it's it's a bit of a natural fit. And then we figured, why not extend it to the entire sports world, and because everybody eats, you know, mm-hmm. even the vegetarians eat something. I'm not sure what it is, but they eat something. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I, I think it just, it's a, another way to help 
us please our audience, hopefully. Yeah. Where, how has your job kind of evolved over the years? I mean, you're writing about football and food um, and sort of the overlap of the two now, but um, from when you first started, what? how's it changed over the years? Okay, so I majored in journalism at the University of Florida. Uh, mm-hmm. I went to college from 1996 and I graduated to, until 2000. Um, when I graduated from, from college, I assumed that I would write for a newspaper my entire life. I thought if I ever made $50,000 a year that I'd be incredibly lucky. Uh, I thought if I worked really hard, you know, by ten, by the time I was in the business 10 years, maybe I'd get to cover a college or a pro beat, and after 20 years, maybe I'd be a columnist. And now that path no longer exists. That mm-hmm. doesn't exist anymore. I've worked for two newspapers. One of them no longer exists. One of them has gone out of business. Uh, the Tampa Tribune, I worked there five and a half years. It doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. So very quickly I had to say, I, I learned that the only constant is change, and if you don't adapt, you're done. Like, I started, you know, at, at newspapers, and, and you talk to the old-timers who were like, well, you know, I'm not going to write anything for the for the Internet or uh, just just going to do my stuff for the print edition, and then two or three years later, well, I'm not going to do any video, and then a couple years later, that, I'm not going to do a blog. All of those people are unemployed now. All of mm-hmm. them. The only people who are still employed are the ones willing to change with the time. So here's I, – I just went – I know journalism schools have changed uh, from the places I've, I've talked to, and then I, you know, in the course of the job, I see – I meet a lot of – a lot of students who are in journalism school currently. And I think a lot of journalism programs have kind of figured it out. Here's one of them, that you have to have a a very multiple skill set, that you can't be just a print person, just a magazine track person, just a TV production person, just a a TV on-air person, or just a radio person, that you need to learn how to do everything. And so, I mean, I don't just work for Sports Illustrated. I also work for SiriusXM. I host at least one show a week, usually more than that. Um, I do videos for Sports Illustrated, uh, which I shoot myself most of the time. Uh, I did a podcast. I will do a podcast again. When I was doing it, I was producing it myself a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you, you just need to learn how to do everything. You need to know how to be on camera. You need to, have to know how to be on mic. You need to know how to write. The, mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is what makes a good story hasn't changed. What makes something interesting to readers or viewers or listeners hasn't changed. You just need to be able to, to deliver it to them in all the different ways they want it delivered. Mm-hmm. That's the tricky part. So as long as you understand what, is it, what, what makes a good story – you can learn all that other stuff. You can learn how to write a, an inverted pyramid story that would run on a website, you know, five minutes after a news event happens. You can you can learn how to say stuff on the radio. You can learn how to how to cut a, a ninety second, you know, quick take video. All that stuff is is stuff that just takes a little practice. The the hard part is knowing what a good story is, and that's one of those. I'm not I'm not sure that's a learned thing, or maybe you're just born with it. Mm-hmm. What are some of those things, I mean, that you've seen over the years um, that do make a good story? 
always think about how would someone who doesn't follow this feel about it? The really good stories, the truly, the ones that, that actually, you know, people pass around are usually the ones like, I always think about how my mom feel about this when she was alive. Now it's how my wife feel about this because my wife's not a, a big college football person. She'll watch a game when it's on, but she's not living and dying with it. But if it's a story that she'd be interested in hearing about, if, if I could tell my wife about this story and she doesn't check out within the first 30 seconds, I know I got something. It's it's something that, that has a little more broad appeal. And that's that's really it. It's it's you know, the the best way it was put to me when I was when I was growing up was uh they call them Woe Martha stories. And it's anything where you you know, the the picture of the guy the old the the guy sitting at the table drinking his coffee, reading the paper, and he spits out his coffee and goes, Whoa, Martha, did you see this? That's a good story. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you, I mean, you travel, um, all the time and you write stories like national stories. So what, how do you find those sort of stories? Do you kind of just get tips from people? Um, are they stories that you kind of just dig up yourself or where do they come from? Well, it, 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 a couple ways. A lot of times it's something that has been written about locally, but has not really been explored nationally. I'll, I'll, I read a lot of you know, good beat writers and, and pay attention to what they're doing. And if I see something interesting, I'll, I'll call about it. You know, I'll call the school, call the player, call the coach, whatever, and, and interview everybody and, and write a story. But a lot of times it's, it's because of relationships. It's because I've written about somebody before, or I know this, I know a guy who knows a guy and they say, Hey, you need, you, you need to look into this and this might be interesting for you. Um, that's a lot of it is, you know, you just know somebody and they trust you and, and they'll put you in contact with somebody else. So that relationships are the most important part of the business. It's it's not just for quote unquote sources. Like when you write the story that says sources said, <laughs> I hate those stories. I don't like writing those stories. But what I do like is knowing people who can put me in touch with that or just say, Hey, I heard something interesting about this guy. You may want to check it out. Mhm. And through, I guess, through those sort of relationships, have have you written any stories that you, I guess, the way the word is, your favorites or ones that you remember that um, kind of were memorable that you'll never forget or something like well, that? My, my my favorite story didn't have anything to do with relationships. My favorite story just had to do with me opening my email. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite story that I've ever written is about the. Um, the high school football team at Fort Campbell High in Kentucky. And it's so Fort Campbell's a military base in Kentucky. Uh, you've got the 101st Airborne there, and you've got the Night Stalkers are there. And they have a high school on, on post, and it is only for the children of soldiers who live on the base. And they won three straight Kentucky State titles in football at a time when basically every player on the team at one point in or another in the, in the previous, you know, four or five years had had at least one parent in Afghanistan or Iraq. Mm. It was just a crazy situation. And it's an incredible story because you just, I mean, it's such a different life than most people 
can imagine. And, you know, we talk about what soldiers have to do to, to defend the nation and all that stuff. But when you talk to their kids, it really hits home. And so that story just hit on so many levels, including the football one. I mean, they, they were – they're a team where <laughs> basically half the team could up and leave because their parents get transferred to another base, and then a new half the team shows up as their parents get transferred in, and the coach has no control over it at all. And you're sort of at the mercy of the Department of Defense. So there's so many layers to that story. And all I found out about that one because somebody sent me an email. Wow. Somebody who had served um, with one of the parents from the football team in another country said, hey, you know, you've got to check into this because this is just a, such a cool story. And so I started reading up on it, and then I started calling everybody and, and spent a few days up there, and sure enough, it was it was fantastic. It ended up being the coolest story I've ever written. That was back in uh, 2010. Wow. And you just sort of started explaining um, what you did to kind of write that story a little bit. Do you mind going in more detail? Sort of what your process is um, from, I guess, once you get the um, the note on what you what story you're going to write and yeah. you get the idea. What, what's your process through the whole thing? Well, that one, so that one I, I got the email and, you know, this was a person who was not involved, so I didn't get back in touch with them. And I called the coach and said, hey, has anybody ever done a story on you guys, a big story on you guys? And he said there was a documentary crew, but then it didn't end up running. And um, I was like, well, you know, would you mind if I came by? He said, well, I would love for you to, but this is the Army. You need to go through the Department of Defense. So I called their public relations people and got everything set up, got cleared to go on base, and um, then went up there for two or three days and just hung out with the coaching staff and the players and their parents and uh, went to a game and, and just kind of soaked it all in, took a bunch of notes, shot some video, uh, recorded a lot of interviews, and uh, I went home, and then you have to figure out how to write it. And how do you make this interesting? How do you... How do you make people understand what's going on here? And the the thing I kept coming back to was the fact that every every kid had a parent in Afghanistan or Iraq at some point. And so I tried to make it I, – I decided I was going to construct the story in a way to show, okay, here's these people over there, o- overseas, living and dying with the team, but also they're in war zones. And then here's what's going on back home with the team. And so I, everything in italics was in Afghanistan or Iraq. Everything in, in regular type was back at Fort Campbell. And I led it with this scene that sounded like a scene out of a movie. And it's something that uh, one of the, the higher-ranking – one of the parents who had a higher rank in the Army had told me. He said he was, he was stationed in Iraq, and he had – you know, it was during the football season, and he's just couldn't, he couldn't do anything but listen to the the broadcast of the games on the internet. But he wanted to see him, and um, he gets a phone call one night says, "Meet me at this checkpoint." Uh, it was like a refueling truck that was coming through, and and was going to be passing by close by, 
And so the guy says, meet me at the checkpoint. So you have this, like, midnight handoff of a brown paper bag in the middle of Iraq. Or it may have been Kuwait. It may have been Kuwait. I'm trying to remember the exact details. But in the Middle East, in the desert, handoff of brown paper bag. Well, inside the brown paper bag are DVDs of the games, of of his kids' games. So... That's it's a it's an easy way to lead a story like because I you, you know you you think you're getting some high level military intrigue and it, it <laughs> turns out the dad just wants to see his kid play football and right. so it was it was pretty easy to construct that story once I figured out how I wanted to do it and then the rest of it just wrote itself because the material was so good I mean everybody had such an interesting story that it's one of those that. I regret every word I left out, but you kind of have to remember the reader doesn't know what you left out. They only know what you put in, and everything I put in was really good. So uh, that was that was fun. Yeah, um, and you sort of mentioned the challenges of kind of getting on base and um, getting in touch with some of the people just um, because it was the – um, Department of Defense. What are some other sort of challenges you've, I guess, faced over the years? Um, well, is there anything that one, sticks out to you? We had an interesting one last season where I was at the Alabama Ole Miss game, and I'm sitting there in the press box waiting for the game to start. It was a, a 3:30 Eastern CBS kickoff, and so the one of the noon games on ESPN was Florida State Louisville. And that's the game where Lamar Jackson just slices and dices Florida State, and the whole country's like, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> and I'm sitting there in Oxford like, oh, crap. We don't have anybody at that game. This guy's the story. What do we do? And so we, uh, I called my editor, and I'm like, do you see what's happening in Louisville right now? I said, do you want me to figure out a way to get up there tomorrow and do a Lamar Jackson story for the magazine? Because the magazine closes on Mondays. Mm-hmm. So that's a very quick turnaround to go from game Saturday, interview Sunday, magazine story complete on Monday. But I felt like we had to get something on this guy because he was going to be the story. And so I called, and we can't make any promises about who's going to be on the cover because you never know what can happen between when you write the st- when you file the story and when they close the magazine. Some big event might happen. Somebody important might die. You never know. But this was a case where we felt pretty confident if we could get a Lamar Jackson feature turned around, he'd be on the cover. And so I called, I, I called the sports information director at Louisville, uh, well, the, the guy from football, Rocco, uh, Kenny Klein's their head guy. But I called Rocco, I said, listen, there's a real good chance your quarterback could be on the cover of Sports Illustrated if you can get some time for me with him tomorrow. This was probably about two hours, uh, well, let's see, when was that? It was after the Alabama Ole Miss game had already ended, so this would have been like, 7.30 Eastern time that night, right after it was between between Alabama Ole Miss ending and, and me interviewing 
Alabama and Ole Miss players for my web story. And so he goes, I don't know. I got to talk to coach. Let me see what I can do. Within 30 minutes or so, he gets back to me. Um, yeah, we can do that if you can get up here. What time can you be up here? And I'm in Oxford, Mississippi, and I need to get to Louisville, Kentucky. <laughs> so um, I said, yeah, I can be there by noon. Just, you know, whatever whatever you need me to do. And he's like, all right, you, you get here by noon. You'll have him. We'll get you Coach Petrino. We'll get you Tom George, the AD, and, uh, and we'll get you the, the offensive coordinator. I was like, thank you. That's all I need. <laughs> and... In the, and so that night I get done with my Alabama Ole Miss story and the traffic outside the stadium at Ole Miss is just, just it's awful you know it's such a small place the roads are all two lane roads around there and so when you're emptying out that many people it takes forever so I'm done with my story but the traffic I can see from the press box the traffic's still not moving so I'm like, well, I was hanging out here and work on this other story. So I got Lamar's high school coach on the phone because I've, you know, I've been in Florida most of my life. I live in Florida. Um, I don't have every high school coach's number, but I've got a few people I can call that I can get them pretty quick. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't even remember who I called, but within five minutes, this coach's cell phone number appears in, in my text messages. So called him, got, you know, talked to him for about 45 minutes, got a bunch of background stuff that I could ask Lamar about the next day, um, and then called some other people who had been, who had seen him as a recruit and, uh, you know, could tell the story of how he got to Louisville uh, instead of, you know, say Miami, which was the closest to his house, or Florida, which really recruited him hard, but he ended up picking Louisville. Um, and then I got Lamar the next day. I got Bobby Trino the next day and uh, sat down. And, and it's interesting because that day was a long day that Sunday. So mm. I slept in Memphis. Saturday I drove from Oxford to Memphis, slept in Memphis, woke up, drove to Louisville, interviewed Lamar and all those people, went back to my hotel room. I have a, a, a column every Monday called Punt, Pass, and Pork. Mm-hmm. that appears on SI.com. It runs every Monday. I cannot not turn it in. So I had to do that. Then I have a, ra- I have a radio show on Sirius on Sunday nights from 7 to 10 Eastern. I can't not do that. So I got to the hotel. I wrote, uh, I wrote Punt, Pass, and Pork, some of it. I did the radio show. I finished Punt, Pass, and Pork about... 11 or midnight and I stayed up until 4:45 in the morning writing Lamar Jackson story and turned that in about 5 and then slept until about 9 and then got up and waited for them to call me with any sort of editing stuff. Jeez. So that's that's a crazy weekend. <laughs> um well, I mean, that's what you got to do. It's, yeah. it's the story was the story, and if we missed that, then we would have missed that moment. Mm-hmm. Cause there was no, there there was no one else in college football that anybody was talking about, and and it ended up turning out beautifully. I mean, the 
the picture they found for the cover was amazing. It was this picture of Lamar Jackson making a cut during that game. And his his leg and his foot, the position they're in, you're like, most human beings couldn't do this. <laughs> and so it's just it's it's amazing how it worked out and it's one of those things that yeah, when you're when you're slogging through all that stuff, it sucks and it's like I just wanna to go to sleep, I just wanna be done with this. But when you see the cover and you see the story in the magazine, like, oh wow, this was absolutely worth every second of that. Mhm. Definitely. Um do you think some of that I mean you were able to do all that that weekend. Does that come with, I guess, your experience and sort of um, your part of Sports Illustrated? Do you think that you have those contacts and are able to um, get out there and do that sort of stuff, part because of you work for Sports Illustrated, or do you think it's something that really anyone could do as long as they had the um, the resources? Oh, I, to make I, happen? if I if I had been twenty three. And all that, and and been at that game, and and then needed to do the Lamar Jackson thing. The Lamar Jackson story would have never gotten done. I never would have gotten it because I just wouldn't have known what to do. And yeah, working for Sports Illustrated absolutely helps. When when there's a possibility that your player can be on the cover of Sports Illustrated, you know that that doesn't mean as much to the younger generation, but to the the generation that that gave us the coaches and the athletic directors in this country. That means a lot, and it means a lot to the fans, especially a fan base that's never had one of their football players on the cover. You know, I think they've had some basketball covers at Louisville, but I I don't believe they've ever had a – at that point, I don't believe they'd ever had a football cover, and that means something. So they were willing to go out of their way because it was something they'd never had before. But if I didn't know Rocco and Rocco didn't know me – then I don't think it would have worked. And Rocco knew me because Charlie Strong had vouched for me because I had covered Charlie Strong when I was covering Florida for the Tampa Tribune, and he was the defensive coordinator. And so when Charlie was the head coach at Louisville, I you know came by and, and talked to him a little bit, and um, you know he had meant, he had said something nice about me to Rocco, and so Rocco knew that Charlie didn't trust everybody in the media and and so if he says something nice about you that's probably a really good thing mm-hmm. and so that's the sort of thing i mean everything <laughs> you think about it everything matters as you move through your career how you treat people matters and people will remember if you treat them well and people will remember if you treat them badly and if you if you treat too many people badly then they're not going to be willing to help you. I mean, Rocco did me a massive favor. He didn't have to do that. He just he just did. Um, and I, I think that that only happens if if you've treated people correctly over time. Because if you don't, word gets around about that too. I mean, the 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 sports writing fraternity, the sports information director fraternity. They're very small. Everybody knows everybody. So word gets around good and bad. So you you got to try to try to always do the right thing. Mm-hmm. What 
What sort of role is social media playing nowadays? Um, we've talked sort of about the change of sports journalism and how it's how it's been changing over the years and how colleges are even having to change curriculum and um, teach students a lot of different things. So what, what role have you seen social media and online content, um, I, I mean, change over the years? Well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, it started out as posting stories on the web. And the big question, like when I started working for the Tampa Tribune in, in 2002, the biggest question was, do we post the story on the web or do we wait until it comes out in the paper before we post it on the web? You know, because if we have news, why are we going to post it on the web? And then the St. Pete Times will know that we have this story when we could just publish it in the paper the next morning and they don't have it. And now they've got to wait 24 hours before they can put it in their paper. Well, eventually we figured out the world just moves faster than that. And if there's news, get it up. And the people who resisted that don't work anymore. Uh, then it became, you know, do you, do you, do you do a blog that supplements your beat coverage? Well, yeah, because there's, there's always an appetite for it. There's always somebody looking for more. So you do that. And then social media comes along and I just think with social media, it, it was a good opportunity for people like me to build a brand. Like, people got to see more of your personality. They got to see you as a human being rather than just, you know, a byline. And so, I, like, Twitter was fantastic for me because none of the food stuff ever came out. If you knew me, you knew about the food stuff. You knew I was always looking for the best place to eat and uh, that I could... <laughs> eat a disgusting amount of food, <laughs> but nobody else knew that. Just, just my friends knew that. But with Twitter, it's, it, I don't, I'm not limited to what I cover. I can talk about whatever I want and <laughs> food happens to be my biggest interest. So I had no problem mixing it up with people on, on Twitter and, and Facebook. And I, I'm not a big Facebook guy. I don't like it. It's just I don't I don't find it that useful personally, but I do know that half the world is on Facebook, and I need to do more <laughs> more with it. Uh, and Twitter has a very small user base compa by comparison. But what's interesting is we in the media like Twitter. It, it, it's actually kind of aimed at us. We're the we're all the people who used to sit there and read the AP wire. Well, this is like a customized AP wire, mm -hmm. so. Um, so it just depends on, on what's your thing. And the photographers obviously gravitated to Instagram and Snapchat, I would assume was created so people could send naked pictures to each other and <laughs> seems to have blossomed from there. So, really? yeah, so, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, where do you see the future of sports journalism going? Is that, is that sort of the future? Do you think, um, do you think that there will be any sort of newspapers left in the future, or will it all be through just online and Twitter, social media, things like that? Well, there's always going to be some publication. There's going to be a publication. It doesn't matter 
how the publication gets delivered to you. That there, there are going to be places that set themselves up as sources of information. The, the question is, who's going to pay for it? You know, the advertiser-based model, which is what my company pretty much works off of. You know, we still have we have magazine subscribers too, but my our website is given away for free to the end user, and we expect advertisers to pay for it. Well, there's some money to be made doing that at a at a grand scale if you have a ton of users, but there's not as much if you don't have as big a scale. So if you're a newspaper, it's really hard to make money off the web. But I think you're seeing now there's a little bit of a renaissance because people realize if you don't pay for something good, you tend to end up with crap. And so you're seeing the Washington Post have a renaissance because people are realizing, wait a second, if you pay reporters and they get unique information that is useful and interesting, readers might pay for that? Well, yeah, they might. And so you, I think you're going to see more places go to a subscription model because you can say information's free all you want, but it's not free. It costs something to report it, and so it's – it's somebody's got to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if if you have advertisers paying for it, you don't always get the best product. If you have the end user paying for it, then the consumer, the person paying for the information, can give you input on what it is they actually want, how they want it delivered, how they like to read it. And so that might make for a better product, but it's a matter of training people who've been used to getting everything for free to actually pay for it. And, you know, it, it's it's going to be hard. There, there are going to be a lot of people who are trying to convince. But, but at the end of the day, if you think about it, if you could get somebody to, to get one less latte a week, they could probably afford a subscription to their favorite publication. Mm-hmm. And that way, they could support their favorite writers and get the information they want and all that. And I think there'll be a time when when that's more normal. But the the original sin of the media industry was when newspapers decided to put everything online for free Mm -hmm. because it trained readers to expect everything for free, and it's not free. Right. And I wanted to I want to go back to the um, SI8 thing because that's sort of what we're talking about as far as the future and your personal future and what sort of job security for you I guess um, making yourself more valuable. What whose idea was the Sports Illustrated Eats um, platform? Do you know? It was me and a guy named Ryan Hunt and a guy named Andy Gray. Mm-hmm. Cause Three of I, us came up with it. I read your um, the boiled peanuts piece. It was short. Mm-hmm. What was it? Maybe yep. five hundred words or so. Um, seven hundred, yeah. Seven hundred. And honestly, the way you write about food is incredible. <laughs> and that was just it was a fun piece to read. And like I said, it was short, easy to digest. And yep. 
Good. And so what, what's the future of this platform? Um, what are you guys, how do you see it evolving? And what do you see well, that's really kind of up in to the, the future for it? It's, it's kind of up to the readers. Mm-hmm. They're going to tell us what they want out of it. We're going to try to give it to them. You know, I'm, I'm doing restaurant reviews that we can turn into city guides. I'm going to write some stories that kind of examine the intersection of food and sports. Uh, like tomorrow I'm meeting up with a minor leaguer who's like a big foodie, and we're going to talk about how to eat your way through the minor leagues, you know. <laughs> How tough is it to find something good to eat when you're in rookie ball versus, you know, you get to AAA and, shoot, I mean, they got AAA teams in Nashville and Memphis and Las Vegas and lots of great great eating cities. So, um, but we're going to write stories like that. I'm doing videos. I did a, we're doing a video series called Snacks Illustrated where I, I review all these different crazy things that people come up with. Um, like yesterday, the one we put out was uh, – I reviewed the Lucky Charms milkshake at Burger King. <laughs> so, I mean, we're gonna we're gonna give people a lot of stuff, and then what they respond to is what they're gonna get more of. What mm-hmm. they like is what they're gonna get more of. That's at the end of the day, that's that's the whole point. Is I I, I worked with a guy at the Tampa Trib named Martin Fennelly. He's a columnist. He's currently a columnist at the Tampa Bay Times, and. It was a few years ago. It was probably it was like 2010 or 2011. I was down there working on a story, and I bumped into him, and we were having lunch somewhere. And we are talking about all the stuff going on in the business and how things had changed. And he goes, you know what I want? I said, what? He said, just give me something to read. And I think about that a lot when I'm working on stories. If it's if it's interesting to me, if it's something I would read, then I don't think I'm that different from anybody else. I think that's something other people would want to read. So that's kind of the goal. Just give me something to read. Just give me something to watch. Just give me something to listen to that, that is going to be interesting. It's not more of the same old crap. And that, that's all there is to it. And if you can give readers enough of that, they're going to like you and keep coming back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... I mean, I I agree. It's a big part of it. Just that's sort of how I try to go into my stories. All right, too is just what what do I find interesting that I think other people will like too. And so I think that's exactly. good to hear the, the, that the that's old, along the right track. It, it's a uh, I mean, it's a it's a cliche thing, but because I know every every journalism school teaches this, but it it really works. If you were getting home from school and telling your parents or getting home from work and telling your spouse what happened that day, whatever you mention in the first 30 seconds is your story. Mm-hmm. Whatever is yeah. the most interesting thing <laughs> is your story. So, I mean, it, it's, it's, not, it's not rocket science. <laughs> it really isn't. Even though, even though we try to make it out to be and even though we, we seem to struggle with it, I just I think it's not that hard to figure out what's interesting. The the hard part in the last few years is figuring out how do people want it delivered to them. That's been the real challenge, and it's it's just something that through trial and error you kind of figure out. And but as technology changes, what people want changes, and so we just keep going through the trial and error phase, and eventually we'll 
<laughs> we'll get it figured out. <laughs> Definitely. Um, well, my last thing I wanted to ask you, since, I mean, you are um, a foodie and love food, know all about it, what is, let's see, we'll go your your top place to eat in Athens. Okay. Hmm. Or if this you want to do a top three, go for a top three. I'll do a top three. I'll do a top three. All right. So I love Kelly's Jamaican. Love it, love it, mm-hmm. love it. The fact that I can walk there from Buttsmere, like mm-hmm. if I'm going to interview Kirby Smart, I'm going to interview a Georgia player, I am going to walk over to Kelly's. And I what do you get at place. Kelly's? Uh, jerk chicken, rice, and peas. And then – Usually, uh, the other the the identity of the other side sort of depends on the day. Um, <laughs> but uh, the the redneck Reuben at Pulaski Heights. Okay. And then the uh, the chicken and waffle sandwich at the world famous. Nice. All right. Well, I actually haven't been to the world famous yet, so I'm gonna have to. I might have to go it's for that. Awesome. Get him. Get, <laughs> are you 21? Yes, I am. Get him to make that tang drink for you. All right. It's crazy, but it's good. Awesome. Um, yeah, those people are cool. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it, that, that town, it's unbelievable. I love Athens mm-hmm. so much. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun place to live. It's a, it's a good college town, good place just to, I don't know. It's, a, it's yeah, an addicting place. Really you never want to leave. Oh, yeah. There used to be a really good breakfast place called the Five Star Day Cafe. I think that closed. Mm-hmm. I like that place too. Mm. Um, yeah, I haven't heard of that. But it's I, like I live in Gainesville, so it's sort of the same deal. Like, never get too too in love with a restaurant in a college town because it might <laughs> close, you know, six weeks mm-hmm. from now. So, even if you think it's successful, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's definitely. I, I think Athens is the best college town in America. So, oh wow, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> Well, good. I appreciate that. <laughs> yep. Um, well, um, I mean, that's all I had for you. I, like I said, I, I really appreciate just you talking to me. I know I'm, I'm a college student, just doing this for a class assignment, but it's. Um, oh, I'd, I'd rather I, talk to you than like random radio station. <laughs> you guys yeah, well, ask better questions. Really, really. Although, although at this point, it, it's it's hard, and feel free to put this in whatever you end up doing. <laughs> I, I do feel a little weird talking when, when I do interviews with college classes or college students because I don't feel like I have any answers for them. <laughs> at the end of the day, everybody wants to figure out how do I get a job, how do I stay employed. So I'm 38. I ba- I've got to figure out how to work 30 more years. I, don't, yeah. I, I have no idea how that's going to happen. I, like, I don't know what I'm going to be doing 15 years from now. And I went into this business feeling fairly certain I was going to do the same thing until I was 70 years old. So I just, I just think it's, it's changed so much and everything is in flux and you just have to be willing to roll with the punches and you have to love it a lot because it's not, mm-hmm. you, you, you can, at, at the outset, you could make a heck of a lot of money, do more money doing almost anything else and not have to deal with the hours or the competition or the stress or any of the other stuff. So if, if you want to do it, you've got to love it. 
otherwise go go do something more boring because it, at least that will be a steady paycheck right. yeah awesome well I appreciate it. This has been this has been fun. This is good. Yeah, no problem. You're you're fun to talk to. A lot of good information and just cool stories that you have from I mean, just years of doing well, this, I guess. Make, making me relive that Lamar Jackson weekend. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's weird because I, I, I hadn't thought about it in a while and mm-hmm. like saying it all I was like Oh wow, that was a lot of stuff. Yeah, I was wondering How if you were ever gonna that? say you actually went to sleep. <laughs> it wasn't a great sleep. Let me put it that way. I I thought I could sleep until ten, and people started calling me at like eight thirty. So I think I crawl. I, I just finally just like at nine o'clock just looked up at the ceiling like forget it. I'm getting up. So oh, man. Yeah. All right. Well. But it's fun. Yeah. Well, I, again, I appreciate it, and um, just like I said, it's just for a class. I made post it somewhere i don't know just um because it is a lot of whatever you want to do with it yeah Yeah. just just quote me accurately that's all i ask i will (laughs) don't worry i will (laughs) so all right i appreciate it yeah no worries you have a good one all right andy all right see you later all right bye